0: Well, good morning again. Acts chapter 2 is where we're going to begin. Acts chapter 2, page 771 in the church Bibles, or if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, you can turn to that page and be right there. We might have gone through every season in the past 36 hours here. It was raining yesterday and fog, and then the sun came out, and then it went away, and now it's back, and it might be 80 degrees when you leave. It's going to be a while. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) So we're going to read the Bible, verse 22. We're going to read it a little bit, quite a bit. I think it's going to help us this morning. So let's hear the word of the Lord together. Men of Israel, Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him an oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God raised Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact, exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For God did not ascend to heaven... And yet, for David did not ascend to heaven, yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word this morning. Now, just a brief prayer, just to seek the help that we need. And God and Father, we thank you for this precious moment given to us right now. We would ask that you would make this book live in us, show us ourselves, show us our Savior, and make this book live in us. We can't do what we need to do, Father, without your help, and so we pray for that help now. For Jesus' sake, amen. You know, it shouldn't be any surprise where we're headed this Easter morning. The Bible has so much to say about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Everything about Christianity hangs on the fact of his resurrection. If there's no resurrection, there's no Christianity. So it's no wonder that Peter's sermon at Pentecost, which I think is just masterful, I, I love reading it. It's the first Christ, Christian sermon ever preached. It's it's no wonder that Peter takes his listeners immediately to Jesus. You don't hear many sermons these days that begin like he does. Usually, uh, sermons begin understandably with you know, some kind of dribble of a story. I was walking along the road and all that kind of stuff to, to draw, draw the listener's attention. But Peter doesn't do that. Clearly, you can sense the urgency that Peter has in him to get the word out that Jesus of Nazareth is alive. And the urgency that Peter has to tell men and women what they need to do because Jesus of Nazareth is alive. Because everyone must do something. Because Jesus of Nazareth is alive. There are eternal implications for everyone who has ever existed or whoever will exist. Because Jesus of Nazareth is alive. You can see it there in verse 22. Men of Israel, listen. or, Or men of Israel, listen to this. <clears throat> excuse me, and the first words that come out of Peter's mouth is Jesus of Nazareth. Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, speaking about what you would suspect Spirit-filled people to speak about, Jesus of Nazareth. And so this morning, we're going to follow Peter's panter, pattern, and we're going to get right to Jesus. And we're going to do so under two headings. If, if you had a worship folder, you can turn to the back there, and you can see where we're headed, the Jesus of history. And then the Jesus of eternity. Then there's a little question at the end that we're going to have to try to answer. So that's where we begin this morning. First of all, then, the Jesus of history. Now, many of you know that the person who's preaching on that day in that true history is making making quite a significant statement giving what marked him in recent history. Because the preacher whose name is Peter is the same man who, seven weeks earlier, just made a wreck out of following Jesus on the occasion of his crucifixion. Just weeks earlier, Peter had denied Jesus, he deserted Jesus, and he had lied to Jesus because he made a real bombastic statement and he told Jesus that everyone might go, but he would never go. He said, essentially, when the going gets tough, he will not go. But, of course, Peter went, and Peter was mean with his leaving, and he wept bitterly because of it. And yet, having been restored by the Lord Jesus Christ, which is Jesus' speciality, and having been granted the occasion to affirm his love for Jesus on a seaside shore, and having been given the power of the Holy Spirit poured out on him by God's grace he now along with the other disciples take to the streets of Jerusalem courageously with the message of Jesus which is the message of Christianity so it's very important that we understand when we hear the message of Christianity this is what we should be hearing namely that the Jesus of history who died on a Roman cross died for humanity's sins and he's now alive and he rules the world and he judges this world and when the father shuts the lights out off to this world we will all have to give an account to Jesus therefore you cannot read this sermon in any honest sensible way without realizing that Peter is giving to his listeners not a philosophy that they should adopt he's not giving them a program that that they have to fulfill and he's not giving them a paranormal experience that they have to partake of if they're going to be right with God. Now it's important that you understand that when Peter preaches, he doesn't give a philosophy. He doesn't give a, a program. He doesn't try to say, he's not trying to save the nation from the bad Romans. And he's not giving them a paranormal experience. But Peter is giving them a person. And the person is the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter is preaching Christ. And that all, that's all biblical preaching is, to be quite honest with you. Preaching Jesus Christ. And he's telling everyone that Jesus is alive. And that things must be thought through because Jesus is alive. And again, remember, this was set—or seven weeks ago. Peter and all the disciples had abandoned Jesus. They just fled him. And seven weeks ago, Peter totally denied that he had any knowledge of Jesus at all. And yet here is Peter now, bold as brass, on the Jerusalem streets declaring the resurrection, which is a byproduct of seeing the resurrected Christ and of actually being with the resurrected Christ and being filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, now when you read the Bible carefully, this is one of the reasons why I love the Bible, it's so reasonable. Now just think with me for a moment. You have this great resurrection moment recorded for us. And it flat out overwhelms the disciples and Peter. And, and once they finally get it, because it takes a while for them to get it. They're very thick-headed. They have that moment. Then they have these little resurrection moments. And if you read the Bible, you'll find that on a number of occasions, Jesus sat with them after his resurrection. He talked with him, them. He, he ate with them. Jesus taught them how to interpret the Old Testament on one occasion. And then he tells them before he goes to his father, he says, I want you to do these certain things. And then you take that and you couple it with the power of the Holy Spirit, which is a wonderful privilege for all Christians to have and to receive. God changes them. And so God convinces them that they must get out of their house of hiding and go declare Jesus is alive in the streets And that is what they do. And in light of this, the sermon Peter preached here about Jesus Christ and about the evidence that Jesus is alive, it's really important that we understand this because when Peter declares these things and then he finishes and says, amen, you're dismissed, what could happen after he preached is they could check the public record to see if what Peter was saying was true. The same is here true. When I'm done, you're going to be able to check the Bible and think and to see if what I'm saying is true. So when Peter preaches Christ, many of them get it. I didn't read it to you, but about 3,000 people got it. Which is why at the end of the sermon, when Peter kind of makes his altar call, verse 37, they said, what shall we do? Peter, we get it. We're guilty. I mean, this is historical. You're right. It's verifiable, Peter. You're right. And we're putting this all together in our head. We need to be saved. Now, that's why it's so important disappointing when you hear people say Christianity is just a fable. You know, it's a a nice kind of moral religion to teach you how to be nice and to teach you how to be sweet, and that's about it. But when people say that, you can be almost guaranteed that they have never read the Bible on their own with a serious mind. Christianity is not a fable. I I want you to listen to this. This is the Gospel of Luke chapter 2 in the New Testament. Listen to this. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. Now listen, does that sound like a fable to you? I mean, does that sound like a fable to you? There's names, there's places, there's events that can be investigated. That's not a fable, not if you're honest and not even if you're suspicious and you're willing to go do some investigation because what you'll find is that Jesus Christ can be pinpointed in history. You can read him about history in the Bible and you can read about him in secondary history. That's why Christianity is not a blind faith. It's it's more than a feeling as the song goes. Christianity was not done in a dark corner. This is a reasonable faith. Now just think of it this way, if I told you that there were seven young men, this will show my age just a little bit, if I told you that there were seven young men that came from Liverpool, England in the 1960s who sang beach songs and sang songs about surfing and fun, fun, fun till your daddy takes the T-bird away, and I told you that their names were the Beatles, you could check the record and say, that's not true, those guys are who, They're the Beach Boys. Thank you. And they're not from Liverpool. They're from California, USA. And that is akin to what we have in the Christian Witness, in this sermon, in the gospel. This is not a fable. This is not a theory. This is not a concept. This is not a feeling. This is a person, a real person in real events that is grounded in truth. This is the gospel. This is the story of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, then I said the first point was who was the Jesus of history? And it is, verse 22, the Jesus of history was a man. Notice that. He was flesh and blood so that he could bleed and die, which meant that the suffering that Jesus Christ undertook, he felt. He didn't get a free pass from from the pain surrounding his death. So when Jesus was slapped in the face, he, he felt it. And so when Jesus was having a th- crown of thorns just plunged in his head. He felt it. Why, was he, why was it. why was it felt? Because Jesus was a man. And so when a man like that is beaten to mush, as Jesus was, and hung on a cross bearing all of humanity's sins on his body, that man feels all of it. I mean, one of the things that we should be surprised about, we should be surprised of how much restraint Jesus shows when he hangs on the cross I mean, he's quoting Scripture. He's telling people that they're forgiving. He's giving people good news while he's hanging, bleeding on a cross. Now, was Jesus more than a man? Yes, of course he was. He was the God-man. He was the God of heaven and earth. The early church immediately got this. They started singing songs about Jesus as God immediately Because in Jesus, God became man so that he could dwell among us and put himself forward as a sacrifice for sins. The Jesus of history was a man. The Jesus of history was a miracle man. Verse 22b Accredited, approved, qualified by God to to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him. Now, the miracles that Jesus did, they weren't parlor tricks. They weren't things to kind of drum up a crown. This wasn't circus time. Jesus wasn't healing people so that would be kind of like a carrot stick so people would want to be with him and then they could be on his list. No, these miracles had theological significance. The message of the kingdom of God was being proclaimed when Jesus did these mighty deeds. And Jesus' mighty works were evidences that God had begun in Jesus to set up his kingdom in a new way through Jesus. So, so the healing miracles, the calming of the storm, the turning of water into wine, the raising of dead people, the feeding of 5,000 and 4,000 with, with essentially a lunchable... These miracles, they had meaning, these were signs given so that people would believe that the kingdom of God had come in Jesus, and only in Jesus, and that God was approving the works and words of Jesus. See, the Jesus of history was was a man, he was a miracle man, and the Jesus of history was a dead man. That's verse 23, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose. God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Now, what's Peter saying? And are you shocked by what I just read? Because what Peter is saying is that the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ delivered Jesus over to these people. That is a great mystery. That according to the foreknowledge and, and purposes of God... And yet still at the hands of wicked men under their own jurisdiction, God was working out His plan to save, save humanity. What was God's plan? God's plan was put my son to death. The death of Jesus Christ was the plan of God. The death of Jesus Christ, not as a martyr, not as an example, and, but our substitute. In Frederick Leahy's book, which is a great book, The Cross He Bore, he writes, Never for a moment did Jesus falter in his obedience. Never did he doubt his father's love. Never did he doubt his father's justice. Love and justice are in perfect balance at Calvary. There could be no turning away from the commission given. In fact, Jesus prayed for this moment when he said, Father, your will be done. I mean, that is a great lesson for us today who try our best to run away from sorrow and run away from pain and run away from suffering because of the gospel. I mean, I, I get all that, but those things will come. It will come. But if we're in Christ, those things aren't the last word. I mean, you ever thought about the name Good Friday, which I still can't find how that name became that name, a name what we've somehow settled on for the injustice which took place at the death of Jesus Christ. I mean, why is it called Good Friday? And then the gospel, good news, the good news that God put Jesus to death because of our sin, yeah, I get it. But if you're really thinking, it's kind of a paradox. I mean, it's a paradox that God is, became man and he dwelt among us, that, that is a paradox. Jesus is man, but Jesus is also God. And it's kind of a paradox that there's eternal good coming out of something so bad in a moment of history, the the unjust death of a man who is not guilty, Jesus. But when you think through these things, God was behind it all. Wicked men are their own prerogative, yeah, but God was behind it all. God put Jesus to death for our sins. And again, Jesus isn't unruly in this. He's a good servant, isn't he? I mean, he knows why he came to this earth. He quoted Isaiah 53 frequently. I've come to die for other people's sins. You know, how would you like that to have your life principle? Why did you come? Well, I've come to die for other people's sins. Really? Yeah. I'm going to be punished brutally for other people's sins. Really? Yeah. That's what my father wants. Yeah? Yeah. It is the Lord's will, Isaiah 53, to crush me. Really? Yeah, that's it. Why was it the Lord's will to crush Christ? Because the Lord was laying on Jesus the iniquity of us all. The punishment for our, for our sins laid on Jesus. That, that should be kind of humbling, shouldn't it, to think about those things? And what is humbling is also kind of terrifying. Because Jesus in his death was living out in full color the drama of the punishment and curse of sin. Do you understand that? In the cross of Jesus Christ, we see in full color what the punishment of of sin is. In other words, this is what is going to happen. When you see this cross and think about the pain and suffering that Jesus endured, in some way, that is what's going to happen for everyone who remains in their sins. That's the curse of disobedience to God. That's what it's going to look like apart from Christ. So Jesus was crucified, and and the Bible says that he was outside the holy city. It's a metaphor because he was outside the presence of God because of sin. Matthew 27, 45 tells us that darkness covered the earth. The light of the countenance of God was removed from Jesus. Why? Because of sin and and the Son who was always in communion with the Father. And there's a moment in time then that that no longer happens, The, the Father's felt presence is taken away from Jesus. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because of sin, not his sin, but our sin. Pain because of sin. Torment because of sin. And and I say to you again, if you want a glimpse of what it will be like to be eternally condemned by God, if we stay just steadfast in our rejection of Christ, if you want a glimpse of what it will be like if you keep going your own way, and your own bent, with you calling your own shots. If you want a little glimpse of that, then look at the cross of Calvary. The cross is what it means to be forsaken by God. I want you to listen to a short quote from a guy named Charles Spurgeon writing about this. God seemed, as it were, to take an oath and say, By the blood of my Son, I swear... That sin must be punished. And if it is not punished in Christ for you, it will be punished in you for yourselves. Now, you're sensible people, right? You're going to have to think that through. This is the Jesus of history. He was a man. He was a miracle man. He was a dead man. Now, if that was the end of the story, then then all we could do is kind of have pity for Jesus. And many people do that. They turn on the TV, they watch the movie Jesus of Nazareth, and they feel sorry. And then after they feel sorry, they feel good because they felt sorry. Jesus Christ does not want our pity. Jesus Christ wants our confession. So Peter goes on to say, the same Father who delivered him over to death is also the same Father who raised him up from the death. That's verse 24. God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Many, many years ago, I did a funeral and the whole family was African-American and they sang this song, There Ain't No Grave Gonna Hold This Body Down. It's a Johnny Cash song, right? There Ain't No Grave That's Gonna Hold This Body Down. When, he, when we hear the trumpet sound, Ain't No Grave Gonna Hold This Body Down. Because death for the Christian has no victory, just like death for Christ has no victory. That's our second heaven heading, the Jesus of eternity. The Jesus of eternity is alive. He's alive right now. It was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Now, now I want you to consider how Peter is appealing right now to their minds. Now, you stay with me. He's already established the fact that Jesus is a real person in history. And he told them, verse 22, and not so many words, you know these things about Jesus actually happen. You saw all these things. And then Peter tells them, point blank, verse 24, God raised Jesus from the dead. Now, they're going to have to think they're good Jewish people. Can God do those things? And they're going to have to think through all the things they heard about God, God making the world in seven days, God making walls come down just by people marching around them a few times, God raising dead people up. So all of a sudden they're going to have to think and they're going to go, do we really believe this about God? And if they say, yes, they do, then all of a sudden they're going to have to put this all together. The one that God predestined to save the world, God raised up because he's the one that was predicted to save the world. That's our second point. Jesus is alive, but Jesus was predicted. Verse 25, Peter begins to quote from the psalm, a psalm 16 written about a thousand years before the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So again, you have Peter appealing to their minds of his listeners and he's saying, "Hey guys, you've been reading these Psalms for years, thinking out verse 27b, you will not let your holy one see decay." Is David talking about himself? No, of course he isn't. Well, why isn't he? Look at verse 29. Peter says, "Dear friends, this is a kind of a para- paraphrase. Let me be completely frank with you. Our ancestor David is dead and buried." His tomb is in plain sight today. His body is decaying. You know this. You can go check it out if you need to. So David wasn't talking about himself, but David, as a prophet, was looking ahead for the one to come, the Messiah, the Christ. And his body would not be abandoned to the grave, verse 31a. And his body would see no decomposition or, or no decay, verse 31b. Because, verse 32... God raised Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. We've seen him alive. Now, if you're still with me, I want you to see how Peter's sermon is logical. You're going to have to think. It's reasonable, and it progresses. It's a logical, reasonable truth. So this is Peter's whole sermon in a nutshell. Hey, everybody, listen to me. Jesus Christ really lived. He did miracles. He did signs and wonders. God was with him, and you know this. And God's purpose in Jesus was to put him over to to death by handing him over to cruel men. And he did die. And you know this. He was nailed to a cross. You know this. And God raised him up. God raised him up showing that Jesus, what Jesus said and what Jesus did was absolutely approved by God. Jesus was the son of God. So he couldn't stay dead. He's alive. And we saw this. And one of your own heroes said, David, he predicted this. He predicted that, and he was talking about Jesus, he predicted that your Holy One's body will not see decay. And then look at verse 26, because this was David's response to that. My heart is glad, and my tongue rejoices. My body will also live in hope. Why was David so happy he was happy because he knew that there was a definitive answer to what is life like past death question, right? That's the big question. And life in, after death is not like floating around in a spirit. And after you die, you just don't die and that's it. It's all done. Life after death is a bodily resurrection. And Peter says, people of Israel, you know David's body is still in the tomb, And we're telling you, because we're a witness to this, is that Jesus' body is no longer in the tomb. Question, why is Jesus' body no longer in a tomb? Answer, because God raised Jesus to life. In fact, Peter goes on to say, I can tell you right now that Jesus is at the right hand of God. Jesus is God's right hand man, and he's waiting for God's plan to finish off all his enemies. Look at verse 35. Isn't that it's not very nice. The enemies of Jesus Christ are going to be a footstool of Jesus Christ. You ever thought about that for a minute? Jesus is going to put his feet on his enemies. So then Peter says, "Know this. There doesn't need to be any doubt any longer. God made this Jesus whom you crucified the master and Messiah, Lord and Christ." And this had great effect on people. 3,000 of those people said, we get it. After they said in verse 37, what should we do? Now I want you to think with me. Because up until that moment, whatever they were clinging to as their only hope in life and in death, obviously was not helping for 3,000 of those people. So at that moment, either they abandoned their hope or they had no hope at all. But to... For Peter to tell them that they were guilty and to show them that their Savior was alive, it gave them hope and they repented and they believed. And, loved ones, that is the Jesus of eternity. He's alive, he was predicted, he is in his throne in heaven, and he's waiting for his Father to finish off all his purposes, which in part means to shut down this world, to judge all mankind. Sending those who say yes to him to a place the Bible calls heaven, and sending those who have said no to him to a place the Bible calls hell. Which takes us to our final point and to our big question. This is the big question What is your only hope in life and in death? Do you have an answer to that question? What is your only hope in life and in death? Now, this is what I want you to know. When you're hearing all this stuff about Jesus, you may not believe any of it this morning. That, that's fine for now. But at least you have to admit this, that the Jesus of history and the story of Jesus is a rational story in relation to the world and its history. I mean, has man found a way to fix things yet after so many thousands of years? I mean, we can, we can destroy ourselves, but can we save ourselves And in relation to to the question of what is your only hope in life and in death, have you ever thought about the alternative answers? Here's just three. The Buddhists say that what happens is that we're just going to go flatline in in nirvana. We won't feel a thing forever. Do you really want that? Pluralists say, take your pick. Whatever religion you want, it's all up to you because it's all about the same. Do you really want that? I mean, just do you, do you know what Mormonism looks like after death or the Muslim faith looks like after death? If you're a lady, you can check me later out, check this out later. You do not want life after death as a Mormon woman or a Muslim woman. I can guarantee you that. And then my neighbor, the other day, I was talking to my neighbor, and he told me after I asked him, What is your only hope in life and in death? He says, Nothing. I'm going to die. And that's it. The Christianity has a question, or has an answer to the question, what is your holy, only hope in life and in death? And when you get this answer, which I'm going to give you in just a moment, you're going to be able to sleep at night. You're going to be able to make it through the day. You're going you're to be able to face the fact of your death. You're going to be able to face the fact of your death. And you're not going to be able to deny The good news that Jesus Christ is alive if you come to him now. So let's try to answer the question, what is your only hope in life and in death? And I do this all the time on napkins when I'm sharing the gospel with people. And I write down these four words, the good, the bad, the new, the perfect. And I tell them, this is the good. God made all of us. We belong to God by creation. He made us for a relationship with himself. We're not a bunch of chemicals, you know, just held together in suspension. We're not plankton soup that was struck by lightning, you know, eons ago. Our birth is not random. Our words are not random. Our lives are not random. And that's the good news. Your life matters. Where you go and what you do matters. The breath that you just took right now that God gave you, it matters. And you say, okay, I was made for a relationship with God, but I I don't ever, ever think that way. I don't even feel that way. Well, what's the problem? Well, that's the bad news. We've chosen to turn our backs on God. we replace God with substitutes. We always think we know better than God. You know, we just barely go to the book and find out what God wants. So we take substitutes, lively little things that we hope will satisfy our inbuilt desire. Our inbuilt desire to know God and have a relationship with God. And, And so the substitutes come and they come in like a lion. So we worship stuff. We worship success. We worship now other places, and we think if we could just get to that place, then then it would be like heaven on earth. And we worship ourselves, but our substitute God can never gratify because we invented them and because those substitute gods are only supposed to serve us, but they can't because we were not made to worship us. And the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is the one whom we have offended when we do this. God says there's only one me, and it's not you. And that's the predicament of our world. That explains the predicament of our world. That's why some of us have a dry, dusty taste in our mouth when we wake up in the morning. We, we cling to fads, and we go and come, and they and it just so quickly we rip through them. I was thinking this week, so, so, so you get out of bed to get in your car, to get money, to buy food, So you can get in your bed and then get in your car to get money to buy food. So you can get out of your bed to get in your car so you can get money and you buy food. And you wake up some mornings and go, that is enough of that. This is not all of life. Paul Simon in the 60s wrote, Up a narrow flight of stairs in a narrow little room, as I lie upon my bed in the early evening gloom, and paled on my wall, my eyes can dimly see the pattern of my life. And the puzzle, that is me. And you're saying, what is the piece of the puzzle that's missing? Why do I feel so alienated from God and so alienated from this world? Well, the Bible tells us there's two answers to that. We feel alienated because we have rebelled against God. And we feel alienated because God is punishing our rebellion. Therefore, we're in a bad place. So we need some news, don't we? We need some good news. This is the good news of the gospel. The wrath of God has been dealt with. God made Jesus to be sin for us in order that in Jesus and only in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. We might become the children of God. We might become reconciled with God. No no more dark feelings of alienation. No more sorry substitutes. We can go to bed at night knowing for sure that we are right with God. Why? Why? I mean, that's a great feeling to go to bed knowing that you're right with God. Why can you have that feeling? All because of Jesus. You see, the good news is this. Although we have put ourselves in the place of God, God in Jesus on the cross has put himself in the place of man. So that when we can sing, when we sing together as a church, we can sing, I I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that He died for me. That's the news. God made things in the world new in Jesus Christ. It's new, but it's not perfect. Not yet. On earth, with Christ, is wonderful, but earth is not heaven. No matter how much you have, no matter how much you have and all that you can do, earth is not heaven. Read your Bibles, read your newspaper, think about your own life. Pain, suffering, angst, disease, sin, marks of a fallen world. Every week, it seems like in our prayer list at church, somebody is suffering horribly. The good, the bad, the new, the perfect. When when is the perfect because some people say when you come to Jesus, it's going to get perfect right now. Your life's going to get perfect and you're going to be perfect and it's just going to be perfect. That is not even rational. Not even rational to life and not even rational to the Bible. Things will be perfect. Things will be perfect when we were with God and with His Son and with God's people in heaven. And that's when things will be perfect. The good, God made us. The bad, We've rebelled against him. The new Christ has paid the price of our rebellion, the perfect heaven with him, but not yet and not your own way. Listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth is alive. He was dead, but God raised him up and he's coming back and he's going to judge the living and the dead. And your only hope in life and in death is this. Listen carefully, that you are not your own. But you belong both body and soul to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who has fully paid for all your sins with his precious blood, setting you free from the fear of death and giving you an answer to your only hope in life and in death. So you're going to have to go home, and I want you to try to think about that. And, and in that worship folder, there's a little space there. Write it down. Write down the answer to the question, what is your only hope in life and in death and see if it'll take for all eternity, right? We're smart people. When we buy a home, we read through the contract and we don't sign it unless we're good with it, right? And that's just about a wee little home. Why wouldn't you take a couple of minutes today and write down your answer to the question, what is your only hope in life and in death and see if it'll stick? Thank you for your attention. Let's bow together as we pray. God and Father, we thank you so much for the story that is true, that is historical, that is verifiable, that is theological, the precious story of your redeeming love as you send your son to a cross to pay the debt of man and women's sins and that you raised him up. And that is in part the reason why we're here to celebrate this to be confronted by this, and to think things through because of this. This is the most important time and question that we will ever have up to this moment in our life. What is our only hope in life and in death? And I pray that the answer that you want will be true of all of us here this morning. Now may the love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ And the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be your abiding portion both this Easter morning and every morning until Christ returns or until Christ calls us home. We pray these things in His name. Amen.